0: So speaking of kids, when I was uh, going into kindergarten, we moved to 4321 Bridgeview Drive. That is the actual address, 4321 Bridgeview Drive. And that house was built in the 1930s. And My mom still lives there. The thing that's unique about that house is that the locks in some of the bedrooms is an old skeleton key. You know, you, the, it's not the modern key, but an old skeleton key. And the bedroom down in the basement is a guest bedroom. And it's clear. You can see right through the the keyhole, okay? And you can kind of see a little bit what's going on there. If you've ever done that, it's, it's kind of like this. You look through there, and you get a little perspective. But you, you really don't see everything. You just get, you know... And you don't get the whole picture. In fact, what might be behind the door might be a totally different reality than what you actually can see. It's just a piece of the puzzle. Now if you've been with us in the Gospel of Luke for the last few weeks, you might want to open your your Bible up to Luke chapter 9. But we see a distinct shift where Jesus starts giving His ministry to His disciples, but He's also revealing More of who he is. In fact, last week he asked very candidly, who do you say that I am? In verse 20. And Peter says, well, you're God's Messiah. And that's great news for the disciples. They've been waiting for the Messiah. But the thing is, he's maybe a different Messiah than they expected. This is what he says about himself in verse 22. And the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and and raised to life. Turns out the disciples only had a keyhole view of who Messiah was. And they only had a keyhole view of what it meant to follow Messiah. And he goes on to say this, In verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And only had a keyhole view. But today, Jesus is going to fling open the door to the disciples so they can see for just a few minutes his full glory and who he is, who he truly is. And it's overwhelming to them so much that... They can't fully take it in. But we're going to see this, especially this week and next week, that understanding who the Messiah is actually is going to determine how you really follow him. We're going to see that for the disciples, it's a process. (laughs) It's a process for them. And the truth of the matter is, when you follow Jesus, it's a process for us as well. But today we're going to the mountaintop. We're going to see Jesus' glory flung wide open to us, to the disciples. And next week we're going to go back down to the valley, see what it means to follow this glorious Messiah. So if you have your Bibles, again, we are in chapter 9. We're actually going to pick it up at verse 27, the last verse we looked at last week, because this dovetails right into where we're going today. So let's pick it up at verse 27. Truly I tell you, some of, excuse me, I need to put forth the big point here. Jesus is going to reveal his heavenly origin to his disciples. So, verse 27, he says, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went into, unto a mountain to pray. He was praying, and the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men... Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his his glory and the two men standing with him. Men were leaving Jesus, and Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid it, as they entered the cloud. and a voice came from the cloud saying, "This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him." And when the voice had spoken, They found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. Let's pray and then we'll uh, get into this passage about Jesus' glory. Hmm. Lord Jesus, it's, it's true. At times we look at you only through a keyhole. We don't see you for who you fully are and truly are. So would you give us eyes to see, even today as we look at this moment, where you revealed yourself to your disciples, to us. And as we sang earlier, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we might see you. That we might respond to you in wisdom, in truth, Worship you and follow you for who you truly are. Do your work in among us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for quite a while now. And the Gospel of Luke starts out with what? Chapters 1 and 2 talk about Jesus being the unique Son of God. His birth is announced by an angel. He's virgin born. We see an angel army come and announce his birth to a group of shepherds. He's prophesied over in, in the temple. He is the son of God come to earth. It's Christmas. That's where we're heading in a couple, couple months just by our own, our own seasonal calendar. But we know this. We know this because we've been following the story in Luke. It's also part of our our culture. But you know what? The disciples, they don't. They don't know this. And this this encounter with divine uh, glory is for their sake. It gives them another piece of the puzzle about who Jesus is. It's for our sake as well because... They're the ones who are witnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But what's interesting is he only takes three. Peter, James, and John. Why? Well, so far we've seen that these guys are kind of Jesus' inner circle. They're trusted guys. He did this with uh, Jairus in the previous chapter. And maybe it's just sometimes it's easier to deal with three and kind of unpacking something like this then try and do that with with all twelve. But these men were leaders amongst the disciples and they were going to influence them. The other nine or the other eight as Judas had excluded himself. But I also want to say this, and this is what we're going to look at for the most part, is that the divine fingerprints of Yahweh of the Lord of the Old Testament is all over this account. And there's a connection. There's a connection here. So first of all, let's just start on the fact that they went up onto a mountain. Okay? So often in the Old Testament, that's where God brings His people or His prophet to speak to them. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. And Elijah, will go up to Mount Carmel to have this face-off with the prophets of Baal. And then he'll go and go to Mount Sinai again to hear God's still, small voice. So This is a typology where God is laying out evidence very clearly. I'm going to speak to you in this. Number two, we saw this last week. Jesus is praying. He brings Peter, James, and John up, and he's praying. We saw last week that Jesus did the same thing as he got the disciples alone. In the Gospel of Luke, prayer comes before pivotal moments of revelation. Whether it's Jesus being baptized, Jesus choosing the disciples, Jesus asking, who do you say that I am? And Peter confessing, you're the Messiah. He's praying that they might see who he truly is. He's cooperating with the Father to reveal to the disciples who he is. And as he's praying, the Father answers his prayer. His appearance has changed. His face has changed. His clothes become bright as flashing Of lightning. There's a physical change to his appearance. Mark talks about his clothes being like so white that no launderer could get it as white. So I don't know if he had a contract with Tide or something, I'm not sure. But Matthew talks about his face shining like the sun. His inner nature is being revealed. What was veiled by flesh is now becoming evident. It presents Jesus in his glory as it was when he was in heaven previously. And then this. Two men appear. And they appear also in glorious splendor. And it's Moses and Elijah. And they're talking with Jesus. Now, what's the significance of Moses and Elijah? Why not David and Daniel? Moses represents the giving of the law, of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, how to live before God. And Elijah represents the prophets, which is pretty much the rest of the Scriptures. But here's the thing. The Old Testament Scriptures is not just a collection of random stories just kind of thrown together. No, it is the history of God's dealing with His people and His plan to save them. His plan to be engaged in their lives and give them a promised Savior. Jesus is that Messiah that was promised, the fulfillment of what God had promised in the law and the Old Testament prophets. I'm going to cheat now and and scoot on over to the Gospel of John. Because Jesus says this to a bunch of Pharisees who are looking in the Scriptures. John 5, 39. says, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. Moses and Elijah's presence there are testimony that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. They're to confirm that. And they're there to testify that he is the promised Messiah, and he's going to do what he talked about earlier that he would suffer, be rejected, die, and rise from the dead. Verse 31. And they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring about fulfillment in Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting, the Greek word there for departure is the same word that the, the Greek Old Testament, called the Septuagint, would use to describe the exodus. The exodus from Egypt. Moses led the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt out of bondage. Jesus has come to lead us out of bondage, to set us free. But it comes it comes with his suffering, his rejection, and his death. And as it said, it's going to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. It's going to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Again, we saw that the shift pattern as his ministry is moving from Galilee up in the north down to Jerusalem. It's going to go to the same hill that so many years ago that Abraham offered his son Isaac up and it was said that God would provide the lamb he's not going there to kick out the Romans, he's not going there to set up an earthly kingdom he's going there to go to the cross and all this, while this is happening those disciples are trying to wake up. They're trying to stay awake here. Verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. I guess we're not the only ones who have problems staying awake in a prayer meeting sometimes. But as they see this very, they, as they see what's going on, they wake up quickly. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is amazing. Is this a description of them being spiritually dull? Maybe. I think it's just evident sometimes that even when we come to prayer, we don't realize that we're coming into the very presence of God. And what a privilege that is. But they become fully awake, and they become fully engaged. And this glorious sight of Jesus, Moses, Elijah, it so impresses Peter, he feels the need to say something. Sometimes silence is golden, but Peter feels the, free, the need to say something. Verse 33, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Luke comments, he did not know what he was saying. But you know, Peter's response totally makes sense as far as a Jew is concerned. See, the Jewish history was that God would come and tabernacle or shelter, or dwell with his people. As he took his people out in the desert, they made a tabernacle. They made a shelter. It was portable where God would come and dwell. Currently, the current temple where God was supposed to dwell, there's kind of suspicion over that building because it was built by a guy named Herod. He's not necessarily a godly man. There's suspicion that, does God really dwell there? Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. Maybe God is bringing a new place to dwell. And these guys, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, could bring that in. It's also just human nature, right? When you have an over-the-top spiritual experience, don't you want to repeat that? Don't you want to prolong that? Don't you want to make it happen again somehow? See, somehow, Peter's trying to get lightning in a bottle. Hey, can we just build these, these, these little shelters, Jesus. Man, it'd be so awesome. Let's be this be this mountaintop experience, and we can invite people here. It'll be great. But God has come to tabernacle. To Dwell among us. But he's not going to be anchored down to a physical location. He's come in the flesh to dwell among us. Again, going back to the Gospel of John. The Scripture says that the Word, talking about Jesus, became flesh. And he dwelt, he tabernacled among us. He walked among us. His mission is to set us free. And He can't be anchored here in a location. And then finally we see God the Father step in. And His presence kind of shakes things up. Verse 34. While He was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. It's this cloud, this physical cloud that's coming, is a manifestation of God's presence. Again, you see it as God's presence would, cloud would come and cover the tabernacle, so much so that Moses and the, and the priests and Aaron could not minister there. You see it again when they build the temple. Solomon builds the temple in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. The cloud of God's presence, his glory is there, and they can't. They can't do anything because it's so overwhelming. And they're afraid. They're afraid because of God's presence. And that's an that's a understandable response because when you're in the presence of holiness, you become very aware of how unholy you are. But then we hear the voice. Verse 35, a voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Again, this is the second time we hear God the Father's voice. We saw it again in, in chapter 3. With Jesus' baptism, you are my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. But the disciples, they weren't there for that. Again, this is for them. For them. So again, first of all, this is my son. God the Father saying that. It's not something that... He presumed upon himself It's something that's true, and I'm affirming. Number two, he's my son whom I have chosen. Mark, the Gospel of Mark will say that whom I love. But God, the Father, is saying this is count. I've chosen him. He's not a Johnny Come Lately walk on onto God's team. No, it has always been. God's plan, God's mission to do it through Jesus, the Son, who was God before time. And in fact, Revelation 3.8 says that He was slain before the foundations of the earth. This was always God's plan. He's chosen. He's the one. There is no other. Number three, listen to Him. Listen to Him. He speaks the truth. He speaks what's right. He's talking about what I'm going to do. And listen to Him, even if you don't get it. Even if you don't fully understand, listen to Him. We talked about this last week. As Moses was departing, he made this prophecy. Deuteronomy 18, 18 18-19. I will raise up for them... A prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Guys, if you want to know what the words of God are, listen to my son. Listen to my son. So here it is. For a brief moment, God is pulling back the curtain for us to see the glory of who Jesus is, the Son. And affirm also that He is speaking through Him. And remember, Jesus has spoken with authority. I say. He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He says, I say. But then it was all over like that. In a brief moment, Verse 36, and when the voice had, been, had spoken, they found themselves alone. Back with plain, ordinary Jesus. But now they knew something different about him, didn't they? There's something more about him. You know what's interesting is what the next part of the verse says. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. I'm kind of going, why? I mean, this is an over-the-top spiritual experience. You know, when we send people off to like a women of faith conference or promise keepers or something like that, then people come fired up, come back fired up. Why do they want to keep this to themselves? Well, maybe another gospel helps us. Matthew 17, 9, Jesus instructed them not to tell anyone until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They have one more piece of the puzzle. But this all won't make sense until they have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. And maybe they took those words very seriously. Listen to Him. And when He says, don't tell anyone, they said, okay, we won't. We won't. But they remembered it. It certainly made an impression on them. Peter in his second epistle says this in chapter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. <laughs> Peter's saying, Look, I was there. I didn't make this up. And it was an awesome experience. And he wouldn't recant that. And he would go to his death being crucified upside down, because he wouldn't recant that. It happened. I was there. So again, God has recorded in his word this pulling back of the curtain. And the question that you and I need to answer is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Are you going to follow Him? And again, I want to get back to who you think He is and understand Him to be dictates how you follow Him. Or if you're going to follow Him at all. I'm going to ask the question that the Word of the Father came out. Are you listening to Him? Not what other people say about Him, but what he says about himself, what he says about himself that will make all the difference of who you think he is and if you're going to follow him. This narrative tells us that he is God's son, of his glorious existence, how he's come to earth, and he makes us known to his three disciples here. Now, I don't know where everyone's at here in this room. I think most of you are kind of going, okay, I got that. But you might be going, well, wait a minute, that just seems pretty (laughs) self-serving. It could be made up. Um, I hold this in suspicion. That's fine. That's fine. You know, we're not afraid of, of the questions that come. But here's what I want to take you, I want you to take into account. First of all, read this word again. He is not the Messiah that the people expected. Not his disciples, not not common society. He's a Messiah that's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to die, and he's going to go to the cross. And then he's going to rise from the dead. If it was made up, Jesus is not the kind of Messiah you would want to make up. Number two, next week as you're going to see, even though Jesus has revealed himself pretty plainly, at least to us, the disciples are, having a, are very slow to grasp who he is and following him. And in the end, they all end up denying him, abandoning him, and they're ready to go their separate ways. But something happened. They were changed They go from cowards to bold witnesses, from fishermen to fishers of men. They're willing to face down the Jewish authorities. They're willing to face down the authorities of the Roman Empire. And all of them except for one will die a violent death, confessing Jesus. And yet the faith of the gospel spreads like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. And it changes all of Western civilization. They were changed men. Why? If it's false, how did that happen? And by the way, if you want to see how how Jesus has impacted Western civilization, I encourage you to get a a hold of this book. It's called Who Is This Man? The Unpredictable Impact of the Inescapable Jesus is by John Ortberg. I'll loan you my copy. But, you know, Just the fact that we're even having a conversation of the treatment of women is due to Jesus. Whether you believe that or not? You'll see how that works. But Jesus has impacted, impacted all of history. Ultimately, He changed their lives. He changed their hearts. And He's willing to change your heart too if you're willing to open yourself up to Him. And if nothing else, I pray that you have one more piece of the puzzle of who Jesus is. He's not afraid of your questions. Will you listen to him? Will you pursue who he is? But as the scripture says, he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God who came to earth. He's the Son of God who came to pursue sinful men and women like you and me. And he came to offer his life, to buy us back to God through his own life. And then conquer the foe of death through his resurrection. So we're going to enter into a time of remembering that. Remembering what he has done for us. We're going to enter into a time we call the celebration of the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, If you've never been here, I just want to give you a little bit of background It's his table, not my table. It's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who invites us here. It's a time where we remember what he has done. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, you are welcome at this table. And if you haven't, hey, we're so glad you're here. Just go ahead and pass the elements on down the road. No one's going to think anything negative of you. And we've got some kids in in the service. And kids, here's the rule. You know this. If mom and dad say, okay, you put your faith in Jesus, that's good. And if not, it's a great opportunity to talk about it afterward. But we remember that it was our sin that put him on the cross. And so we come thoughtfully. And I'm just picking up the words of the Apostle Paul as he gave instruction about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves we would not come under judgment. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So for a few minutes, we're just going to ask the Lord to search our hearts, show us areas where we're out of sorts with Him, where we've sinned against Him. And then we'll take Him up on His promise that if we confess our sin, He is faithful, He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then we'll celebrate what God has done in sending His Son. So we'll take a few moments, and Colleen will just play softly in the background and ask the Lord to search our hearts, and then we'll continue in celebration.